Greetings, friends, and welcome to another Singing Scientist podcast. Today we are back in Manhattan for episode four, and the subject is growing up gay and Christian. (laughs) Oh man, we are in for it today. I want to begin my uh, journey with you on this topic by just telling my story of growing up gay in the Christian church. And, um, and the spirit with which I want to do this is the one articulated by Henry Nouwen. Now, Henry Nouwen was a Catholic um, and one of the greatest uh, spiritual writers, in my opinion. You should definitely read his stuff. Um, and, and in his book, Reaching Out, he says the following. Only few happy endings actually make us happy, but often someone's careful and honest articulation of the ambiguities, uncertainties, and pains of life give us new hope. And that's what I hope for this, that just my witness, my story, my account um, would bring you hope and solidarity. And in fact, I'm hoping that there will be moments where you sort of stand up and scream, yes, that's exactly what happened to me. That's exactly how it is. So where did my um, my journey begin? I began really at birth. I was born into a fundamentalist Christian family and community and city. In fact, my hometown ranks among the most conservative counties in the United States. And um, moreover, uh, the particular group or denomination of Christianity that I was raised in was the Church of Christ, which even for Christian standards is considered uh, a little extreme and traditional. Um, I was taught that I had to be baptized to be saved. In fact, I needed to constantly ask forgiveness. And if there were sins for which I had not asked forgiveness at the time of my death, um, I risked going to hell for that omission. Um, And and there were other things, too, that affected um, just everyday life. And the church service, for example, we uh, were not allowed to use instruments in worship. So um, I was was raised in in a context a spiritual context in which um, we were really viewed, uh, that is, humans viewed themselves as fallen, sinful, incapable of good, and that any good or purpose um, that our lives could take would necessarily come by um, conforming to some external standard. That is, uh, namely, the Bible we would have to conform to, and, and not just the Bible, but this particular denomination's understanding of what the Bible meant. And um, But on our own, we were not good, we were not worthy, and, um, and we were constantly reminded of that. And so that was the context in, in which... Um, I, I grew up. And very much like you do not question uh, when you're taught that the stove is hot, when you're taught that the sky is blue, you don't question these things that you're taught at that age. Um, even if there, there feels like there's something dissonant or um, at odds with, with yourself and your understanding of what you're being taught, you just don't question it. And I certainly didn't question for any reason that being gay was a terrible sin, which was something I heard uh, very often. So I did have some attractions, however, um, and even though I didn't recognize them as such, um, I actually one of the first crushes I developed in my life was on a boy in a Sunday school class. I remember him and his name to this day, um, and um, I was always 
feeling an intense type of loneliness. And the way I articulated it at that age was that I wanted a best friend. I was so lonely and I just wanted someone with whom I could share everything. And I had great visions for what this best friend would be like. It would just be someone I spent all my time with, someone who, you know, we were co-workers in whatever fun activities or whatever tasks we had set ourselves. Um, but, but finding one of these people in my life proved very elusive. And, um, and, Within middle school, early high school, um, I thought that well, I need a I need a best friend and I need a, and I need a girlfriend, and so I really tried to make that work. So in fact, I did meet a girlfriend in middle school, and I thought if I had just found the right person, that um, I would start to feel all of those things that I was supposed to be feeling for members of the opposite sex, and so it it might as well be the person I most admired of the opposite sex that would be the most likely to ignite this fire in me um, that was clearly lacking. And um, although that was tremendously, in hindsight, unfair to her, that in my confusion I was, I was reaching out grasping um, for, for this solution to a dilemma that I didn't even understand, she, uh, she turned out to be one of the saving graces of my life and, uh, and a wonderful friend. However, um, this illusion began to come crashing down. This illusion that it, you know it would just take time and the right girl, and I would I would begin feeling madly in love. Um, and and it, it ended one afternoon at home when I was sitting in the living room with my family and we were watching some primetime television show. I think it might have been Diane Sawyer, and the host uh, was interviewing uh, uh, some queer person who uh, who was very experimental and very um, progressive and probably one of the only things I'd ever seen on TV about someone actually being out. And I remember she asked, the, the interviewer asked, when did you realize you were gay? And all in a moment, the sensation came running over my body, my entire a body was tingling with recognition and terror that, oh my gosh, you can realize that you're gay. I didn't think that was possible. I th hey, wait a minute. I thought that being gay was a choice you made. I thought, I've been told that it was a path you take and that this is not something a good person could be. What do you mean, realize? And all in a moment, I, I realized myself that I just might be gay, that what I was feeling, this intense need for someone, uh, really a romantic, a deep longing uh, need for someone of the same sex might mean that I was gay. So I was I sort of froze up and very afraid that um, my family noticed I was having some obvious reaction. So I waited a few seconds, tried to breathe calmly, and um, sort of absconded quietly to my room, hoping they uh, would interpret this as complete disinterest in the subject matter. <laughs> oh, man. So shortly after this realization happened in my life. I, uh, it was time for me to go to driver's training. So I took a driver's training course um, over the summer. And in this 
course, um, was an upperclassman from the high school I was attending. I was really attracted to him and, um, and approached him just to say hello, and it turned out that he wanted to hang out with me too and seemed to be reciprocating some of my romantic feelings. So this was my first experience like that where I thought there might be something more. In fact, I might have found my best friend. Um, and that's exactly how I tried to define it, even though the lines were very blurred Um, we were a little physical with each other. I thought that this was friendship and I was going to justify it as friendship because there was such a conflict between what I believed about being physical with a member of the same sex, namely that it was really damnable, and what what I was feeling for this person. Um, Now, on his end, he struggled a lot too, and his solution was very quickly to cut me off with as much hatred as he could muster, (laughs) and that was the end of it. Um, And even though... Uh, our short time together was uh, was intense and short-lived, I was plunged into a great state of despair. Now, around this time, um, I was going to a different church. I had moved to a large church compared to my old one, and this church had an orchestra. So in my despair, I found music, I was a saxophone player, and I uh, was able to join the orchestra at this church. And I met wonderful friends. Uh, One of the saxophonists remains a best friend to this day. And it was a few weeks of really just heavenly bliss uh, where I was making music. I looked forward to these uh, rehearsals every week and to playing on Sunday morning. And I had a new community that I felt purposeful in. However, after not many weeks... Uh, an older member of the church uh, noticed me there and approached me. He was 31 and I was 15. And he showed great interest in me, in me wanted to hang out, and uh, we started chatting with each other on uh, what was then Yahoo Messenger. I, <laughs> so that's dating myself a little bit. Uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't have iMessage back then. And, um, and one night, in the middle of the night, as this older church man was talking to me, um, he was, seemed to be confessing things. He ended up telling me that he was gay. He somehow knew that I was. It was probably written all over my face, and I just didn't know it. And uh, we began hanging out, and he convinced me to have uh, a sexual relationship with him. And this ended up lasting two and a half years. So, (laughs) wow, looking back at it, it's clear. Um, I'm not even 31 yet. I would never approach a 15-year-old. Oh, my goodness. Um, And it was clearly a case of uh, adult child sexual abuse. But when you're 15, that's why it's illegal. Uh, You can't see these things, and um, I think thought that I had found uh, what I needed, what I wanted in life. <laughs> I thought I was in love, and, um, and he did all he could to perpetuate this feeling in me. However, um, over the course of those years, those, those couple of years, um, I gradually found um, drugs in his apartment. I gradually found pornography and lots of things that troubled me. Um, I was working as a high schooler and ended up bailing him out of some debt that was uh, obviously drug-related and other things. So um, I grew up fast, (laughs) and it was a tough time, 
And um, I felt stuck. And part of the reason I felt stuck was because I was taught as a Christian that um, you only have sex with someone you marry. Now, I think we're all taught that. And there's probably on some level a, a situation or reason for this teaching. But in my case, and I think in many, many cases, this is a terrible teaching because um, if you ever do have sex, you feel such guilt for doing it. That is, if you ever have sex outside of marriage, and if you're 15 or 16 or 17, you should not be married yet. (laughs) And if you have a sexual experience, you feel obligated to essentially treat this person like you are married. Are you with me? Did you, maybe some of you had this experience where you felt like such guilt, you're like, well, at least since I've done the deed, the least I can do to maintain my purity is to be in a monogamous, lifelong relationship with this person. And in fact, that's what ended up entrapping me for so long. I felt like I could not, with any morals, leave the one person I had had sex with. Now, I think his conscience was getting him as well. Um, How could it not? But what ended up happening was, towards the end of that period, I uh, wanted to be authentic. I'm a terrible liar. I hate lying. And um, if I'm keeping some truth from anyone, it really eats me up. So I wanted to tell people that I was gay, and I had already done so with some some people, including uh, the the girl who, who I'd had a relationship with. And in fact, she was one of the greatest supports, and her family was one of the greatest supports of my early life. Um, that said, I needed to be authentic about this relationship. And I thought what I wanted to do was to tell um, our small group within the orchestra. We had a group of, of orchestra members who had a Bible study. And I wanted to tell them that we were in a relationship. Now, it's clear now why this was such a terrifying prospect to this person. Um, but his solution to avoid this was always to overdose on some drug uh, in the days before our small group meeting. And then because of that, his excuse could be, oh, I'm, you know, I, I had this terrible slip up. I'm just really not in a good state to tell anyone. <laughs> well, that only worked a couple times until I thought, well, it's okay if you don't, but I'm going to come out to our small group tonight. And I did. I think that was a Friday, and by Monday or Tuesday, everybody knew. So I was a fairly well-known young person in this church. I had taught some some Bible study classes and things like that. And um, not only did everyone all of a sudden know that I was gay, um, someone had put two and two together and figured out about this inappropriate relationship and told the Board of Elders. So... Immediately, uh, this man was fired, and I was disbanded from the orchestra and my small group, uh, my entire community that I knew I was no longer allowed to be there. And so um, this was probably the most humiliating, uh, embarrassing experience I can imagine a young person having. And on top of that, they uh, let me know that they needed to tell my mother, not just about my sexual orientation, which I hadn't told her about yet. I, I'd always been too scared. They uh, were going to tell her about this, uh, this inappropriate relationship as well. So under these 
circumstances, I was forced to come out to my family. Overnight, I was treated differently by virtually everyone I knew. I had some some great friends that probably saved my life, but um, but by and large, I was treated as a, a sinner, an outsider. And I think part of the reason that this was so shocking to everyone is because in a community like that, where everyone is Christian and everyone has been taught and believes that homosexuality is a choice and it's wrong, that sort of translates to nobody assumes anybody is ever gay. (laughs) I mean, if you believe that being gay is a choice, then if you know someone and they're a good person, they couldn't possibly be gay, right? So I think that's what allowed me to slip under the radar for so long when uh, anyone who had ears to hear and eyes to see would know that Chase was was a gay kid. Um, nobody did. And so overnight, this my entire world changed. My uh, respect that I had I had had from so many people was just gone. And on top of that, the church itself, I think, uh, did something really wrong in the sense that instead of treating me as a victim, a victim of sexual abuse, which was the case, I was instead treated like uh, the seductor, the the one who had ruined it for the church, uh, which had this great situation with this church leader. Everyone uh, loved this leader. And um, instead of treating me as a victim, I was treated as if something was wrong with me, and namely that that was my sexual orientation. So I was actually sent to a therapist uh, in order to have my sexual orientation changed. The church recommended some people and basically washed their hands of the situation. There was almost no follow-up, and I was hung out to dry. And so... Uh, This was a tremendous, tremendously devastating time. Uh, I was briefly suicidal, but a few things saved my life. Um, One of them was reading some books by C.S. Lewis, especially the book A Grief Observed, in which he talks about the death of his wife and how that challenged his faith. So I found a friend in C.S. Lewis and in his book The Four Loves, where I learned so much about love and about what I was going through um, from a slightly different lens, but still someone was articulating what I was feeling, at least my feelings of being in love. And then it also happened that the counselor I ended up seeing for my reparative therapy was a really great guy. (laughs) Uh, I I obviously uh, don't agree with everything he believes, but he ended up teaching me two extremely valuable lessons. And the first thing that he taught me was that if something is of God, it is not oppressive. That was huge to me because I had always felt very oppressed in my sexuality. I felt oppressed when um, homosexuality was mentioned in churches. Even when I was trying to convince myself I wasn't gay, I knew that at some level they were talking about me. Um, and, And I suddenly realized that God is not there to make me feel bad. Now, he might want me to change, but he doesn't want me to feel bad and he doesn't want to hurt me. Anything he wants is for my good. And that really freed me. And and the second thing that freed me, the second lesson that he taught me was that we don't ever pursue a product. We pursue a relationship with God 
and expect that the right product will come just sort of as a natural byproduct. So in other words, um, specifically at that time in my life, his message to me was follow Jesus and in so doing, you will follow the path to change. You will change just naturally if you are pursuing truth and love and light. And so that took a tremendous pressure off of me as well, because I had always thought it was my fault for not changing, my fault for not, um, not succeeding in being a holy person and getting rid of these homosexual desires. In fact, I always uh, thought in the back of my mind that there was some deep problem with my emotional development. After all, that's one of the things that uh, the church teaches, or many churches teach, is that uh, a homosexual orientation results from either an absent father or some sort of stunted emotional growth in childhood. Basically, you are behind, immature, deeply flawed um, at, at the emotional level. And so um, I finally was just, had a little bit of a reprieve, a little bit of um, a respite from all of the self-loathing that I had, uh, that had come so naturally to me, okay? Now, around that time, um, after seeing this man, uh, this counselor for a while, um, I was going off to my first year of college, and then my second year of college. Um, And during those years, I was still trying to change. Um, I tried fasting. I read the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, which is really a fantastic book. I read some books by Dallas Willard um, about fasting and, and prayer and meditation. And I used those spiritual techniques to try to explore if, if that might change me, if I might become straight as a result of pursuing God in that way. Nothing changed. I prayed. I sought like-minded individuals, I became part of InterVarsity, and just did about everything I could think of, but nothing came through. Um, The product wasn't coming as a result of the process, if you will. So, um, as I said before, being raised in the Church of Christ and being a very legalistic black and white, all or nothing, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing, as my friend Meredith and I say. Being that type of person with that type of perspective, I thought, okay, I'm going to try the most extreme thing I can think of. So I think it was the summer after my sophomore year of college, I came back uh, to my hometown for the summer and I was going to try, I had heard of a group that performed exorcisms. <laughs> yes, you heard it right. Um, I learned of this prayer group that met in the evenings at, at various people's homes, and they uh, believed in demons and spiritual warfare and had a, a large bound book. I think I've actually got it somewhere in my home still of special prayers that would exercise different demons and different spirits. And so I thought uh, some of my some of my friends that I grew up with uh, went to this group And um, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to try it. What do I have to lose? Now imagine that. I I look back and I'm kind of bewildered at my own courage because really what that amounted to was saying, I'm going to go into a situation where, (laughs) first of all, everyone in the room knows my sin, knows I'm gay. 
And um, second of all, I'm going into a situation that promises to remove that, promises to diametrically switch my sexual orientation. That's like if a straight person were, go- were to go to a group that, uh, that was going to pray for them and they promised, okay, after this is done, no more attractions to, to women. You're going to be attracted to the same sex now. <laughs> That's really scary. And, um, and yet... I was sort of at the end of my rope, and my my best friend, Michelle, uh, she agreed to come along with me, bless her heart. And so we were there, I, I don't know what time it started, it, was, it may have been around 8 p.m., we were there till maybe 2 or 3 in the morning. I was being prayed for, I was sitting in a chair surrounded by this group of people, the leader had laid hands on me, everyone was laying hands on me, and speaking in tongues, and, and trying to elicit some reaction from from me that would prove um, the demon had left. Okay, so nothing happened. (laughs) The whole time nothing happened. Um, I was getting progressively more and more, um, I guess, agitated, tired. Um, They would sort of press against my head sometimes with their palm and I would press back and just, you know, try to experience it at at sort of a physiological level. Try to experience something. Try to allow something to happen. Trying to surrender my sexuality and um, anything that went along with that. But nothing happened. And so what ended up happening at the very end of this long night was I pretended to speak in tongues. (laughs) I knew that the Greek word that used in the New Testament for homosexual, or at least it's translated sometimes as homosexual, is arsenokoitai. So I uttered that word. I uttered some other gibberish. And they took this as a sign that the exorcism had been successful. And so they closed the evening with with some closing prayers and uh, everything was done and we went home. Now, as you can imagine, um, I was not in a place after that long session where I would have even had occasion to have sexual attraction. (laughs) No, my sex drive was killed uh, quite effectively for, for some time. I was exhausted. So I didn't know. I didn't know at the beginning if it had worked. And, um, and I thought maybe it had because I just I was feeling kind of asexual for for that night and and the next day as well. And then what occurred was, I suddenly I, I don't remember if it was two days later or so. I suddenly had a tremendous peace. Now I I disagree fundamentally now with the whole premise of the situation that I went through there, but. What actually happened, uh, what ended up happening as a result of this was something really, really liberating. And it was the fact that I had surrendered completely my sexuality to God. I had acted out a willingness to have faith no matter where it led. Now, maybe that wouldn't be good for everyone. Maybe not everyone believes that. But for me, it was really almost necessary. It was necessary to demonstrate my faith at that time in my life through such a tr- tremendous, ex- tremendously extreme act so that I would know I had tried. I, had, I would know I had done all I did. And so a few days later, I suddenly felt this peace. And it was as if I was hearing the whisper, Chasey, sweetheart, don't 
don't keep this up because you are going to end up hurting yourself. You've done everything you can. Honey, this is a distraction. It was as if God was saying to me, I have created you, Chase, for such, uh, such great purposes. I have plans for you. You're talented in various different ways. Don't waste any more time on this. Um, I'm really glad that you're that you love me so much that you'll you'll try, but but let this be the end of it, and please get on with your real life. <laughs> and it almost brings tears to my eyes thinking about it because that moment was really the defining moment, and it um, fr- from then on I felt I had done what I could. I did try a little bit more to pray, and and sometimes. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever be rid of the fear that homosexuality is wrong. But for me, that moment, I felt God uh, just blessing me and saying, I had done what I could. For goodness sake, start loving yourself and start pursuing what your purpose is on this life. Because it is not to uh, indefinitely hate yourself, and try to change yourself ad infinitum. There are some things you just accept, some things that maybe I was even created to be that I can't change and shouldn't change. And that's what happened. And I think the reason it did, in addition to just the fact that I had surrendered things, and surrendering our sexuality is probably something everyone should practice. Isn't that right? Amen. Maybe some straight people could surrender their sexuality too. (laughs) There's a thought. What actually happened, in addition to the surrender of that sexuality, was um, a facing of fear. Now, up to this point in my life, and I think for most of us, all of our lives, our our sexual attractions have control of us because we fear them. We fear them so much. And things that we fear are the things that control us. You may or may not have heard of uh, Viktor Frankl, who was an incredible psychiatrist Jew who survived the Holocaust. He'd actually written a book called Man's Search for Meeting about his style of therapy called um, logotherapy was the name of it. And he had written a book and then it was, he lost it all. It was taken away from him and he was sent to a concentration camp. And then he wrote it again after surviving. It's an incredible story. And his book, Man's Search for Meeting, is just a must read. And one of the things he talks about um, in the latter parts of the book, the first part is more about his experience in the concentration camps. And um, the last part of the book is his uh, ideas and theory about therapy. And one of the ideas that is inherent in his therapy called logotherapy is the technique of paradoxical intention. So what is paradoxical intention? I might as well just uh, read a little excerpt from this book to you. And um, it's in the section of his book called Logotherapy as a Technique. And his point, his major observation is that when you fear something, that fear brings about what you're afraid of. (laughs) Or, Or to read exactly what he says, fear brings to pass what one is afraid of. Likewise, a forced intention makes impossible what one forcibly wishes. So in other words, 
if you're tremendously anxious, if you have anxiety about something and you fear it so much, then exactly what you fear will come to pass. And the kind of a cute example he uses in his book is um, about a man who is really afraid of sweating. <laughs> He's afraid of sweating when he meets people. And so he, he, uh, he was a patient of Dr. Frankel. And what Dr. Frankel said to him was, okay, well, next time uh, when, you, when you meet someone and you're, you have this anticipatory anxiety, you're afraid that you're going to start sweating when you're talking with them, um, think to yourself something like this. Last time I sweat just one quart, but this time I'm going to try to sweat four quarts. <laughs> I'm going to sweat more than I've ever sweat before. Um, and as it turned out, he stopped having this terrible perspiration problem. Um, some other examples he uses are uh, sleeplessness at night when we constantly have anxiety of, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to sleep. I'm not going to be able to sleep. That is what keeps us up. So maybe to face the fear of not being able to sleep, you could try, say, uh, staying up for as long as you possibly can. <laughs> and notice that when you do this, you have to sort of have a sense of humor about yourself. You can't be too serious, right? I mean, if, if you view your fear as a life or death situation, then you can't even treat it with the degree of lightness that this paradoxical intention requires. So I think if I had been in a place um, in my life uh, earlier, when I, when I learned about paradoxical intention, I think if I had been in a place where I thought it was a matter of hell or heaven, and I thought it was a matter of life and death, I'm not sure I could have tried this. But I read this back then, um, and I thought to myself, oh, how interesting. Um, you know, I've, I've always learned that I need to look away, I need to bounce my eyes when I see an attractive person, I can't look at anyone. Um, I was also just afraid to look at anyone I was attracted to because I thought they might be homophobic, they might know that I was attracted to them, they might beat me up even. And what I decided to do was, okay, next time I'm attracted to someone, I'm just going to look at them and appreciate them. And suddenly, it wasn't that big a deal anymore. Like I could view someone and view that they were beautiful and view that I really adored and admired them. Um, and as soon as I let myself do that, it wasn't this forbidden fruit. It wasn't this no trespassers allowed territory anymore. And um, I wasn't as attracted to people anymore. Now, of course, I still have attractions, but they weren't overpowering. They weren't controlling me. And I think that uh, gay people, Christian people, and gay Christian people can learn a lot from this idea. And th this, is th this is the idea that I want to close on, this paradoxical intention. So there are two diametrically opposed ways that I think this helped me. The first was in uh, the actual going to the exorcism that I did, because it was I, I was so afraid of both my own uh, sexual attractions and also losing them that I just had to have sort of a, a paradoxical intent, a sense of humor about it, a surrender about it. Really, surrender is inherent in it. You have to be willing to surrender. And that got rid of that fear and it got rid of its control over me. And then, of course, the other way that it worked for me was... Um, 
I, I was no longer afraid to be attracted to someone. In fact, I could actually intend to be attracted to someone. And then they didn't have control over me anymore. Those attractions didn't have control over me anymore. I could actually choose if I were to act. I could choose if I were to um, pursue someone to say hello or not. And the, the, the control that the fear had just melted away. And this is, this is where I want to end. And it's the idea that in order to have that surrender, in order to have that sense of um, humor about oneself and one's fate, one must, above all, have faith that one is purposeful, faith that one is loved and lovable. And that is the true message of Jesus. That is the true message of of religion and spirituality. It's that you are a child of God and you are inherently good. You were created in the image of God. In fact, the very first thing that God revealed to Jesus in the Bible after Jesus himself was baptized was, this is my beloved son whom I love. It was such an important part of Jesus' identity that God revealed it at the very moment um, of his baptism, that he was the beloved. And that brings us back to Henry Nouwen, who uh, stressed this so much, the importance of having a life of the beloved, of believing you are the beloved of God, and believing that you were created with purpose. Now, you don't have to be Christian to believe that. You don't have to believe in Jesus to believe that. Um, All truth is God's truth. All light is God's light. You know, it's convenient for me, coming from a Christian background, to talk of God as he, but obviously God does not have a biological sex. He is not gendered. <laughs> um, and, and this is just crucial to a, a life as a whole human being, believing that you are worth it, believing that you are whole, you are not broken. You may have trouble. You may be damaged. We all are but you are good fundamentally and you are worthwhile and you have purpose. I really, really believe that. And that's what keeps me going. Um, And so above all, I hope that you can join me in believing that about yourself, that sweetheart, uh, you don't have to try quite so hard as you've been trying to prove your worth. You don't have to prove that you are lovely. Um, And you don't have to justify your existence. You are great just how you are. And that is the truth. And upon the foundation of that truth, upon the foundation that you are the beloved, you can begin to practice this paradoxical intention because what have you got to lose? Um, It's not a matter of life or death. You're already loved. And I hope that you can begin to combat fears in your life Um, using this sense of humor, using this technique, and just realizing that no matter what happens, it'll all be okay. So that's where I'll finish. Um, I I wasn't planning to finish there with my story, but that's where it ended up. And I hope that at least some of this resonated and some of it was helpful to hear another perspective. Maybe you're straight, maybe you're gay, or anywhere in between. Um, 
I, I, but I just hope that this was uh, enlightening and that maybe you heard something that you identified with and maybe you heard something that helped you. Um, we don't all have to agree, but it would be great to learn from one another. So to finish out, we're going to recite the words of Richard Rohr once again, and that is that the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Can't wait till next time.